scripture reading now is from Psalm 72 on page um, 573 and 574 in your pew Bibles. Read the whole psalm, but we'll focus especially on verses 8 through 11 in connection with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come. Psalm 72, beginning at verse 1, but I'm focusing especially on verses 8 through 11. Superscription says, of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the moon grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed Be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You can turn to page 895 in the back of your hymnals where we'll um, consider what we confess about the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Reading responsively, question 123. Words day 48, question 123, where it asks, what does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means, rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you, preserve and increase your church, destroy the devil's work, Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Then I will also read question 
191 of the Westminster Larger Catechism on pages 965 and 966, which likewise asks, what do we pray for in the second petition? The answer that it gives, in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins, the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. Congregation, both of those confessional readings speak of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus extending throughout all the earth of of the gospel going forth and all that is in opposition to Christ's kingdom being destroyed. They speak of the preservation and increase of the church, church being purged from corruption, um, even the the furnishing the church with with preachers and, and office bearers. And so some may perhaps wonder, why would we read a psalm like Psalm 72 alongside that? Recall a conversation that I had a number of of years ago with a student at the the dispensational university that I attended where many believe that we're we're very near to the end of the world, that that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and and we really shouldn't expect any, any significant advances for the kingdom of Christ. And I suggested that perhaps Psalm 72 tells a little bit of a a different story of the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord, of the gospel going forth, and of nations worshiping him and people being converted. The, The person I was speaking with said, no, Psalm 72 is just about Solomon. It's Solomon praying that his kingdom and his reign would be successful and has little to say to us beyond that. What does a prayer for for Solomon, perhaps on the occasion of his coronation, have anything to do with what Jesus tells us to pray for the increase of his kingdom? If you'll bear with me for a moment, that opening superscription of Solomon needs to be read in light of verse 20, where the end of the psalm, and and really the end of book two of of the Psalter, says there that the prayers of David, the the son of Jesse, are ended. And so the inspired editors of the Psalter understand Psalm 72 to be a prayer of David. And so a number of ancient translations actually render that superscription about or concerning Psalm. It is a prayer by David for or about the kingdom of his son. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of those those, um, high peaks of the Old Testament, the the Davidic covenant where God promised David that his son would have an eternal kingdom. 
David wanted to build God a house, but God said, no, I will build you a house. I'll raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that promise there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 really becomes the, the heart of the Psalter. It's what we read of in Psalm 2, the very beginning of the Psalter. It's what we find in Psalm 89, and it's what David appears to have in mind here in Psalm 72. Interesting that it comes up at a number of these transitional points in the Psalter. Psalm 2 is part of that entryway into the the Psalter. Um, Psalm 72 is the last psalm in book 2. Psalm 89 is the last book in in Psalm 3. It would seem that the the king and, and the promise of his kingdom looms large in the book of the Psalms. The Psalter has been described as a royal hymn book with this Davidic covenant as its theme. And so I think it's quite natural to read Psalm 72 as a prayer of David at the end of his life for the king who would come from his line to rule with righteousness. And this prayer certainly has Solomon in view to a degree, but, but David really doesn't know who or when this perfect king is going to be. And there are clearly aspects of the psalm that go beyond Solomon, like verse 17, with his name enduring forever and his fame as long as the sun, um, every nation being blessed in him, an allusion back to Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abraham. David's here praying for the coming messianic king who is associated with Solomon, the son of David, but is not Solomon himself, rather that the one who was called in Matthew chapter 12, one greater than Solomon. Our Lord Jesus, which is why when we sang at the beginning of our service, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun, that psalm is is based on Psalm 72, and yet, I believe it's Isaac Watts who who writes that hymn, Um, he inserts the name Jesus in place of the king. For that was David's intent. He was praying for the coming messianic king who God had promised from his line. That's why the, latter, the, the, the prophets later on, they, they will use this very language of Psalm 72 and apply it to the coming Messiah. Isaiah 11, in that um, Advent prophecy that we often read, speaking of the coming king of righteousness, who, who will, um, that, that branch will rise from the, the stump of Jesse, it, it echoes Psalm 72.4 when it says that he will judge the poor with righteousness and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Or later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 60 says of the coming glory of Messiah's reign, all those from Sheba will come and bring gold and incense, barring the very language of Psalm 72.10. Or Zechariah chapter 9, when it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, lowly and riding on a donkey. It goes on to say in the next verse, he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's a direct quotation of Psalm 72.8, in a passage that the gospel writers explicitly apply to Christ. And so what we have there is an application of Psalm 72 by the prophets to David's greater son, whose dominion, justice, righteousness, peace, and glory will far exceed that of Solomon. And so we pray this prayer with David by looking beyond his son Solomon to the one that Zechariah and Isaiah tell us this psalm is about. We pray that his reign and dominion would ever increase. 
We pray that the kings of nations would fall down before him. We pray that the children of the needy would taste his salvation. His name would endure forever as long as the sun and all nations call him blessed. That's how Psalm 72 teaches us to pray for the glorious reign of David's son. And so as we think about this in connection with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, that there's really a lot that we could say, but I want to focus especially this afternoon on verses 8 through 11. Look at these five petitions in those verses for the Davidic Messiah's worldwide dominion. Every time you see that word may in those four verses, that indicates a new, new petition or new aspect really of this one petition. And so we'll take those five mays as our five points, as we uh, let this psalm teach us to pray, thy kingdom come. The kingdoms of this world would become the kingdom of our Lord. And this first, in verse eight, that prayer, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's interesting how uh, so often the psalms or other uh, later biblical writers will echo and allude to the, the language from earlier in, in the Bible, and this uh, seems to be an echo or an allusion back to Genesis chapter 15, where God promised Abraham that, that his descendants would inherit the earth. And what David is here doing is he is praying for the realization of that Abrahamic promise in his royal son. For the dominion of that royal son, we mentioned back in verse 1, to extend from one side of the earth's landmass where it meets the sea to the other side of the earth's landmass where it meets again, from the river on one side to, to the ends of the earth. He is praying for the universal dominion of this Davidic king. That his dominion would not just be throughout the, the 12 tribes of Israel, but rather the four corners of the earth. As, as the prophets elsewhere say, as, as verse 19 sort of anticipates, David is praying that, that through the coming king from his line, the knowledge of God's glory would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. He's praying the universal dominion of the coming king from David's line. As we sang, that Jesus would reign where'er the sun doth his successive journey run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore. That's what David's praying. And then this prayer of David is given to the nation. It's given to the church of the Old Testament that they might join him in this prayer. By the way, the very fact that this psalm is is canonized in the Psalter that is sung well after Solomon's demise only solidifies the point that God's people did not understand this prayer to end with Solomon. But as they continued praying and singing it long after his death, down to to, to us now today, they were praying, Father, give to your son, the true son of David, the the greater than Solomon, worldwide dominion. Let the meek one, Christ, inherit the earth. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We pray for the king of grace to conquer rebel hearts in every nation to preserve and increase his church, as our catechism says. Which then leads, secondly, to our our prayer in verse 9, that the desert tribes would bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. The first part of that is is really the the continuation of verse 8's petition, his um, universal dominion means that even the desert tribes, even those who live in the far-off wilderness, 
will come. As Spurgeon said, unconquered by arms, be subdued by love. It says, wild and lawless as they have been, they shall gladly wear his easy yoke. David is praying for the nations, even the, the farthest off and most unlikely of nations, the, the unreached, the unengaged, to come and bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. David is, again, teaching us about the, the universal scope of, of our prayers or the, the universal scope that uh, should concern our prayers. But then notice what, what he says in the second part of the verse where it says, and his enemies lick the dust. Spurgeon says of this, if they will not be his friends, they will be utterly broken and humbled. Tongues that rail at the Redeemer will lick the dust, the, the serpent's food from Genesis 3. Those who will not joyfully bow to such a prince will be hurled down and laid prostrate. The dust is too good for them since they trampled on the blood of Christ. What Spurgeon is saying and what verse 9 is getting at is, is sort of the, the flip side of thy kingdom come. That not only would God preserve and increase his church, but also that he would destroy the devil's work and every force that revolts against him, every conspiracy against his holy word, the word of Christ. This reminds us that while Christ is going to conquer with the gospel of grace, there will remain those who are yet obstinate in their rebellion who will be crushed. Remember Genesis 3, that first gospel promise that spoke of, of the conflict between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and said that the seed of the serpent would be crushed. That's what this is getting at. But with even that allusion to, to the curse of Genesis 3 on the serpent where, where God said, on your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. Um, David is evoking that in verse 9, praying for the utter defeat of all those who will not bow the knee to Christ the King. As it said at the very beginning of the Psalter, those who will not kiss the Son will perish in the way his wrath be quickly kindled. It will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so David, both there in Psalm 2 and here in Psalm 72, reminds us that to pray for the coming of Christ's kingdom also means to pray for the defeat of every force that revolts against him. Luther, we've quoted these words before, he said, to pray thy kingdom come is to put all opposition to it in a pile and say curses, malediction, and disgrace upon every other name and every other kingdom. May they be ruined and torn apart. May all their schemes and wisdom and plans run aground. Of course, we, we pray that they would be wise and serve the Lord with fear and trembling, that they would kiss the sun like these desert tribes in verse 9. But if they refuse to do so, like the nations and people who violently oppress God's people and God's image bearers, those in Nigeria who killed some 150 Christians on Christmas Day, those who continue to perpetrate the violence and oppression of which verse 14 speaks, this psalm says he will crush them. Look at verse 4. He will crush the oppressor. And verse 9 is praying for that same thing. In fact, both of these verses allude back to Genesis 3. In, in the crushing of the oppressor and in the, the dust licking, the psalmist is evoking Genesis 3.15, that, that Genesis 3.15 promise 
which every prayer for judgment in the Psalms is pleading. As it says in the Westminster Larger Catechism, part of what we pray is that the kingdom of sin and Satan would be destroyed. Thy kingdom come. May all Christ's enemies lick the dust. If they will not kiss the sun, may they kiss the dust. This is how the spirit of Christ in David teaches us to pray that all opposition to the coming of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus would be removed, that persecution would fail, and that all efforts by the evil one to extinguish the flame of the gospel would fail. What what these kinds of, of prayers or petitions in the Psalms remind us is that there is a war going on that some of you this week went to a conference where the theme was the opposition that the gospel faces from both uh, earthly foes and, and even worldly governments. And psalms like this remind us of that fact and move us to our knees to intercede for our persecuted brothers and sisters and, and pray that God, for their sakes and his, would destroy the devil's work. That's what verse 9 and verse 4 are calling us to do, not because we glory in judgment, but because we glory in the gospel of grace going forth and therefore long for the removal of anything that would oppose that. Which actually I think is why verse 9b about judgment is, is sandwiched between two prayers for the nations to come. May the desert tribes bow down before him, verse 9a, but his enemies lick the dust, verse 9b, so they might not prevent that from happening. And then again, right after that, verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. This is the third part of the psalmist's petition for the coming of Christ's kingdom. And again, reinforces the fact that this prayer is a universal prayer. That already in the Old Testament, when David penned this, the vision of the prophets and the vision of the psalmist was for God's blessing on his people to overflow to the nations. The vision of the faithful in the Old Testament was not like Jonah for God's people to refuse to share God's compassionate grace with the nations, but to share with them the glories of the God of Israel. So with us, we are to desire that what God has given us in his grace would result in the blessing of the nations, both as as they come to us and as we go to them. Psalm 72 teaches us to earnestly desire the salvation of the nations. One commentator says of Tarshish that's mentioned in verse 10, says it was so far away that to the eastern mind it was lost in its remoteness and seemed to be upon the verge of the universe. Even so far as the imagination itself can travel shall the son of David rule. Across the blue sea shall his scepter be stretched. David is teaching us to pray confidently for the salvation of every nation. By the way, that's, that's one of the reasons why the Psalms are such a blessing. That they teach us to be outward focused. It, it simply is not the case that if we want to be missional, that we have to ditch the Psalms in, in favor of other songs. But, but read Psalm 67. Read Psalm 96. Read Psalm 2 or, or Psalm 117. 
There is an outward focus. There is a, a um, desire for, for the blessing of God that's given to us in the gospel to overflow to the nations that they might be saved. As Joel Beakey has said of the psalm, the practice of singing the psalms in public and family worship turns the church's inward focus outward to a world that desperately needs to worship the true God. The psalms teach us to pray confidently for the salvation of every nation which is is continued in that fourth May, of which we read at the end of verse 10, may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. As the nations come to worship, may they not do so empty-handed, he's praying, but, but like the Magi, may they offer the true king the worship that is due him. May they show forth his all sufficient worth by laying down their gifts and treasures before him. Many of the history of the church have seen in the gifts that the Magi bring in Matthew chapter 2 a partial and beginning fulfillment of this prayer. That the nations would come to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords and bring him their treasure. In fact, the reason why I've chosen this psalm in connection with Lord's Day 48 is because this Sunday is what's celebrated throughout the church in many parts of the world as Epiphany Sunday, that the celebration of the first revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. Those magi of Matthew chapter 2 who literally do what verse 15 says and bring the king gold. Who come from afar to, to worship the king in fulfillment of the very thing that David prayed for. And that episode with the magi positioned at the very start of Matthew's gospel as it is, it, it prepares the way for, for other Gentiles like the Roman centurion in, in Matthew chapter 8 or the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. These, these other Gentiles throughout the gospel, and it prepares the way for them, and then for that, that great missionary mandate at the end of the gospel, where Christ tells us to pray and labor for the discipling of the nations, of which the worship of the Magi at the beginning of the gospel was something of a harbinger and down payment, whetting our appetites to pray and long and labor for more. Epiphany Sunday is the commemoration of the worship of the Magi as the first glimmer, the first glimpse of the dominion of which Psalm 72 speaks. And as we give thanks for that event, we pray for more of it. That the kings of nations would bring their gifts to Christ, acknowledging him as worthy of all their words, that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord until his kingdom fully comes when he will be all in all. Of which we're given a glimpse in verse 11, the psalmist prays, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. This is a prayer for the fulfillment of Psalm 2. It's a prayer for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, a prayer that all the kings and rulers of the earth would be wise and kiss the Son, that God would make the ends of the earth Christ's inheritance and people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation would gladly bow down before him and acknowledge Christ as king. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, that's ultimately what this psalm looks forward to. It's what the worship of the Gentiles anticipated, and it's what the godly of every age longed for. 
that the Jews would be called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, that God would hasten the time of Christ's second coming when we will reign with him forever. As it says at the end of the psalm, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. We pray for foretastes of this to the advance of the gospel now, and we pray for the full realization of this so the king himself will come again and he will be all in all. That's what David prayed for when he wrote this psalm. That's what you and I are to pray for as we take this psalm upon our lips in prayer and in song, that the knowledge of Christ's glory would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea, both now and forever. Then notice lastly, in verses 12 to 14, it gives us the reason why it is that we should desire this. It says, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him for... He delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves their lives because he redeems them. That's what Christ has done with with us weak and needy sinners as we are. He has delivered us by, by condescending from his heavenly throne to wear a crown of thorns that needy sinners like us might be delivered from Satan's sin and death. He has had pity on us in our low estate and saved us, and so it's only right and fitting that he would have all glory, honor, and dominion, he who has condescended, taking on the form of a servant. Now given a name above every other name that every knee might bow and every tongue confess. That's what we pray for both now and in eternity, that Christ, the the incarnate Christ who wore a crown of thorns, be given the honor, glory, and dominion that is due him. That Gentile nations like those pictured in the Magi who came from afar would come and worship him and offer their gifts. All nations serve him. We pray with confidence that God will do this until his kingdom fully comes when he will be all in all. Amen. Father, we pray for the coming of Christ's kingdom, that every nation would bow down before him, the kingdom of sin and Satan be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the dominion of Christ be from the river to the ends of the earth, the Jews called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus would become indeed the tallest tree in all the garden, where all the birds of the air from every tribe, tongue, and nation would make their nest and sing glad songs of praise to him who has delivered us by his blood. To make us who were his enemies heirs and members of his kingdom. Lord, in view of all that Christ has done for us, we confess that he deserves all glory, honor, and praise, universal dominion. And so we pray, do all this until Christ's kingdom fully comes when he will be all in all, even So come, Lord Jesus.